Well, about seven years ago, Corey and I uh, led a small group of college and career agers uh, on a hiking retreat in Yosemite National Park. And one of the highlights of that trip was a, a day hike up Half Dome, which is a, about a 17-mile round trip hike. And so we left early, early in the morning. And uh, we had this time of prayer before we started on our hike. And it was a, one of those prayers of confidence in God and that we, we asked God to help us uh, just make it and have a great time and and then on the way down we after we summited we prayed these great prayers of praises and rejoiced in God's creation I mean it's just an, a spectacular view from the top of Half Dome but I'd be lying if I told you the story was simply these bookends of a prayer of confidence in the beginning and a prayer of praise at the end those prayers bookended a long journey that happened in the middle the whole hike. Those prayers, those bookends of prayers, don't tell of the baking sun on our backs. They don't tell of the way that we had to tape Corey's boot together because her soul literally fell off halfway up the hike. They don't tell of a young lady in our group who had exercise-induced asthma, which made us go slow. And they don't tell of us refusing to leave her behind, so we went slowly up and slowly down and had to do the last two and a half miles in the dark with only two flashlights. They don't tell of the brown bear that we met on the way down and had to make all this noise because the Japanese tourists wouldn't put their food away and it was trying to attack them. And there was other peril that I don't really have time to talk about. Our hike ended with words of com or started with words of confidence, asking God for help, and it ended with words of praise. But in between those prayers, life happened. Life happened. As we continue on in our series Psalms for the Summer, we're going to be looking at a lament psalm. And one of the things about the lament psalms is that they're between two types of psalms. Psalm 1 is this wisdom psalm. It lays out the path of the righteous person. And it, it seems to say if you, if you live this way, if you love the law of the Lord, you'll be blessed. And, and certainly to a large extent that's true. And then Psalm 150 is a, a great psalm of hallelujahs. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Everything on earth praise the Lord. It's a wonderful, wonderful psalm. But in between Psalm 1 and 150, life happens. Life happens. And there's lament as part of life. We're created for good, to enjoy God forever, to bring Him glory. But we experience in our lives the inexplicable, right? We experience disappointment and grief and injustice and feelings of powerlessness. And we want to ask why? Where is God? How could He let this happen? We want to understand the why. But I'm not so sure that that's what we should be seeking. I'm not even so sure we can understand why. I think it's kind of a, an urban legend or a church myth that someday when we die, I hear this said all the time, someday when I die, I'll go to heaven and God's going to explain it all. Like he's going to show us the back of the tapestry and see, you remember when that happened in your life? Well, it was because of, I'm not so sure that you and I can understand everything that God does. And that drives me nuts, and I'm sure it drives you nuts too. Why? Because we like to know, we like to understand, we like to dissect. We want to categorize. 
This evening we're going to look at a genre of psalm called Lament Psalms. And I want to read this quote by Eugene Peterson. It's very helpful. The psalms don't tell us what to do. They tell us what was done. The psalms don't tell us what to do. They tell us what was done. So, compared to a book like Leviticus, where you have these do's and don't laws, or even one of St. Paul's letters in the epistles, and he, he kind of lays it out, you should act like this and don't act like that. The psalms are different. They're windows into the people of faith over time, and they're, and they're, they're very personal prayers and poems, and they're much more of a, a window into how people lived and thought about God rather than prescriptive instructions on what we should do. So tonight I'm not going to give a sermon about the problem of evil. I'm not going to try to explain why God does what He does. First of all, I can't. Second, He doesn't need me to defend Him. And third, that's not what lament psalms are about. Instead, we're going to see how lament psalms might help you and I to process grief, how to relate to God during our grief. Now, why do we need these psalms? Why do we need help grieving? I mean, it seems like stuff just happens. We don't need any help doing that. Well, because, let's face it, we're not very good at it. We're not very good at grieving. Our society in the West doesn't really prepare us to handle loss very well. From a very early age, we're taught to seek comfort, to always be careful, to wash your hands, don't play in the dirt, you're going to get germs, you're going to get sick. We're told that you can do anything, you can be anything you want. You'll succeed if you just put your mind to it. How many children do we have right now? What, nine babies born in the last year or so? Year and a half? Let me tell you, not all of them can be president. And we can tell you, you can be president of the... No, not all of them, unless they just keep dying or something like that. <laughs> that was really bad. Life experience tells us that you can't just do anything if you work harder. Working hard helps. I'm not saying that. We'll get to the Proverbs sometime further down the road, and we'll talk about working hard. Good thing. Ask Nathaniel. But uh, life experience tells us that if you just work hard and put your nose to the grindstone, everything doesn't always work out right. Our culture hasn't prepared us to deal well with death and illness and disappointment. And Take death for example. You know, in many cultures, and I'm not romanticizing other cultures, there's a lot of great things about our culture. But take death and dying. In some cultures where three generations of people live under the same roof, little Susie, or whatever her, her name wouldn't be Susie in some of these cultures, but, you know, wakes up for breakfast every morning and eats with mom and grandma, and she could probably remember the morning she wakes up and grandma doesn't wake up. And she watches as mom and dad and older brother and other village elders help deal with grandma's body. And there's ritual around it, and there's song around it, and there's explaining around it. And little Susie comes to understand that loss and death is part of life. In our culture, death is almost taboo. When someone dies, we have professionals who come take the body to a special place where strangers give you options about boxes or cremation or urns, and you get to look at a catalog as if you're picking out furniture or a new car. And it costs a lot of money. We have a memorial service, and we have it right close to the death so that the people who are grieving most are so stunned they don't really even have time to grieve. And then after the memorial's over, they're left for months and months by themselves as the rest of us are afraid to engage because we don't want to talk about it. 
In fact, for many of us, it's almost harder to be with someone who's suffering than to suffer ourselves. I know that's difficult for me. Why? Because I want to fix you. I want to have the right word to say. I want to feel important. I want to feel valuable. And frankly, when you're around somebody who's suffering, you're impotent. You can do nothing except to be there, which is what people need most and what is often hardest to do. Grief can't just be fixed. Disappointment can't just be taken away. And when we face people who are suffering, it makes us feel impotent, right? Especially in the church. We just don't know what to do with grief oftentimes in the church. Everyone is so happy and triumphant all the time. So as sufferers and companions with those who suffer, we need all the help we can get. And I think that the lament psalms go a long way to help us find a voice for suffering. All at the same time, maintaining faith in God. You know, you can get any group of people together who want to talk about their suffering, any support group, and you can do that. The difference about a church coming together is that we still lift each other up in faith. We still have people who, when I'm grieving, you're strong, you can tell me, remember, Chris, all the things God has done in your life and that Jesus died for you. And I know you don't feel great now, but I'm going to stand with you until you can feel good again. Now, before we dive into a lament psalm, I just want to give you kind of the general formula. Lament psalms have certain ingredients, just like a great batch of cookies. They generally include some combination of the following elements, okay? They usually contain a word of confidence. So they might start off with something like, God, I trust you. Then they, they contain a complaint or a cry of feeling alone, feeling neglected, feeling like I can't see God in all of this. They contain a plea for help, a cry, God, help me. And they usually end in a word of praise or confidence at the other end. All the Lament Psalms do this except for one, Psalm 88, the one that Kevin wonderfully uh, read just a moment ago. We'll, we'll deal a little bit with Psalm 88 later. Uh, but the lament psalms have this general formula, these general ingredients. And for a standard lament psalm, what we're going to do is look at Psalm 22 this evening. It contains all the basic elements of a good lament. As we look at Psalm 22, I want us to keep just a, a few things in mind. First of all, you'll probably the, notice the familiar sound of its opening lines because Jesus said those same words on the cross. And while there are whole sermons on Jesus' use of Psalm 22, I want us first to read Psalm 22 in an Old Testament kind of outlook. Um, I want us to remember that King David wrote Psalm 22 in his time of trial and testing. Second thing, and this goes for all lament psalms, we have to remember that these laments are scripture. They're part of the worship book of Israel. This book right here is a hymnal. Hymns for the family of God. The Covenant Church has a hymn, hymnal. The new one is blue. 
Hymns for the Covenant Church. These books have outlines of different topics, you know, Advent, Easter, Pentecost, joy, suffering. There's the Psalms in the back of the worship book. There's little things for pastors and how to lead through different parts of the church year. And the worship book, the, uh, the hymnal for the church for most of its existence and the Jewish faith is the Psalms right in the middle, in the heart of our scriptures. So, when we read these lament psalms, we're reading Holy Scripture. We need to ask ourselves, is there a place for these psalms in worship in the church? Well, if they're in our scriptures... That scriptures are scripture, that they are God breathed, that the Spirit of God helped form these scriptures. But I bet you the Holy Spirit is saying, Yes, there's room for lament, even in worship. The way we're going to cover Psalm 22, and it's a very long psalm, I'm not going to go verse by verse. So, what I'd like you to do, if you want, is uh, open your Bibles, your Pew Bible, to page 367. That's the page that uh, Psalm 22 can be found. And I'm going to... What is it? 376. Thank you. 376. Uh, and what I'm going to do is we're going to do some flyovers and we're going we're gonna to stop in on some points and catch the major themes. Psalm 22 begins with a cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Some of the most gut-wrenching lines in all of Scripture. And probably words that you've expressed in your life to some degree or another. Maybe not these exact words, but maybe you felt out there alone. The psalmist feels forsaken all by himself. Things have gone terribly wrong. And we don't know exactly what happened to David to make him write this psalm. But consider for a moment some of the things that could have happened to David. God chose David, this young shepherd boy, to be king over all Israel. He promised him, through your line, through your people, I'm going to save the world. Okay? You'd like to think that when God calls someone to a calling of this magnitude that he's got your back, that things are going to work out okay. Well, David, the one chosen by God, is pursued time and time again by King Saul, the incumbent king, whom David is loyally serving. David is chased by this Saul character so many times that he actually has to go into exile and live among Israel's enemies for over a year. Now, eventually, David becomes king, and he has to handle all these issues of difficult politics. He's got infighting among these, these generals that are just difficult to contain and control. And then his own son starts a coup against him. Such a bad coup, or a successful coup, I guess you would say, that David is run out of his own city, out of his own house. And then his son sleeps with his wives in broad daylight, in front of the community. The ultimate act of shame. At any one of these points, I could see David feeling alone, like God wasn't hearing him, like God had forsaken him. And most of you probably believe, hey, I'm created by God, I'm saved by His Son, and, and believe that you're called to be disciples of Jesus. You try and do the right things, right? 
where we get sick and we lose loved ones and we lose jobs and we break relationships. And, you know, sometimes, well, oftentimes, we bring this trouble on ourselves, don't we? It's called sin. There's other psalms that deal with that. Actually, what lament psalms are good at dealing with is the pain that we receive that's inexplicable. Evil. Injustice against us. And when we cry out for help, we often hear what C.S. Lewis describes as a door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away, he writes. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent in our time of trouble? When we're speechless with grief, the Psalms of Lament can give us language to express our pain. When we wonder if even feeling guilt or feeling anger or disappointment in God, sometimes don't you wonder if those feelings are okay to even have? Well, we can be assured. We can be assured that those feelings are okay. The Psalms are every bit a part of Scripture as the Gospels themselves. And when we're in despair, we can look to the Lament Psalms to not only identify with our feelings, but to show us hope as well. In Psalm 22, David writes with a back and forth motion of confidence in God and a poetic description of his emotions. He appeals to God's character and his past track record. He says, Yet you are holy, and in you our fathers trusted, and they were not disappointed. What fathers do you think he was thinking of? Let's say the Exodus, right? In you our fathers trusted, and they were not disappointed. Remember how that worked? So well God delivered them through the Red Sea. Within days, the fathers were complaining, weren't they? Moses himself didn't even make it into the promised land because of his complaining and because of his disobedience. Hindsight is always 2020. When looking back, the psalmist can say, Hey God, our fathers trusted in you and you were so good to them. I'm trusting in you and I don't see where you're at. Well, I'm sure that David's ancestors were saying the same things at times. Like, God, where are you? You called us into the desert. There's no water. You called us into the desert and there's no food. We get food and it's the same food. Oh. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other story. The underlying thought here is that I'm trusting in you too. And I'm not seeing you show up. Then David describes his current state. He feels degraded, subhuman. He says, I feel like a worm and not a man, a reproach and a scorn to others. People make fun of the psalmist because of his faith in God. They say, hey, where's your God now? Where's your God now? David, who at one point was dancing naked around with the Ark of the Covenant, so excited to have the presence of God in his city. And now he's going through this time of suffering and his enemies, his scoffers, the people that don't believe in God, 
are laughing at him and making fun. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was taking an introduction to the Old Testament class at a junior college. I just needed some, some credit so I could uh, go on to a four-year school. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. I like the Bible. Well, my teacher was uh, an outspoken atheist. And that year, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was horrible, horrible flooding in the Midwest. Um, I think Ohio basically got taken out. And anyhow, uh, he came into school one afternoon and was laughing. And he proceeded to say, it's so funny to me that the people in the Bible Belt are getting taken out by this flood. And he was laughing because he was saying, well, either your God is not good... Or maybe there just isn't a God at all. And don't we sometimes make that mistake of equating our lot in life with God's goodness and His quality? The people are making fun of the psalmist here, saying, Where's your God now, you who are suffering so much? Sometimes things go bad in our lives feel as though our friends and co-workers who don't know Jesus are watching us. And when things aren't going so well, we want to defend God's honor. We want to put on the happy face. We want to come to church triumphantly because we're afraid, well, maybe people won't think I have great faith. Or maybe they'll think our God isn't strong enough. We feel like everything's not okay in our life. Maybe God's name is in jeopardy. But this type of psalm... This lament type of psalm tells us that human doubt and anger and feelings of abandonment by God are not only normal at times, they're also not embarrassing at all to God. Remember, God Himself helped form the canon we call the Bible. He would have probably left those parts out that were embarrassing to Him if His King of Israel was saying, Where are you, God? I don't think God's embarrassed by this at all. I think what it really shows that we cannot see the full picture. We can't see the full picture. We're not God. Now the next lines of Psalm 22, verses 9 through 21, are absolutely stunning. First, the psalmist comes back to words of remembrance. And this time, he isn't remembering his past ancestors. He's remembering a time in his life. And he has such faith, he says, God, you brought me out of my mother's womb. And you made me to trust you like a child on a mother's breast. And I cannot imagine a, a, an image of more vulnerability and trust than a, nurse, a nursing child. A, a child completely dependent on another. And so he's, he's going back to this time of trust in God. And after that, he switches gears and says... He cries to him because he's surrounded by these bulls of Bashan. And Bashan was this very fertile part near Israel. And uh, it's well known for their cattle herding because it was so fertile. The grasses grew and the cows could eat as much as they wanted. And the bulls there were legendary. Big, fat, muscular bulls of Bashan. And David is saying, I feel like this worm, not even a man. I'm surrounded by these enemies that are like the bulls of Bashan. And David describes his adversaries as animals, bulls and lions and feral dogs. And his, in doing that, he, he's saying his opposition is subhuman. They're beastly. They don't even act with civility of a human being. They are intimidating and fierce. 
and they do not reason. And such language is not only, it's not only poetic, but it's universal. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I haven't recently had anyone try to overthrow my reign at the altar's home. Or, 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 you know, I don't have these enemies coming after me and feeling like they're bulls of Bashan around me. But maybe you have different types of adversaries in your life. Adversaries or circumstances that can make you feel surrounded. Things like life-threatening illnesses, either to you or to your family members, chronic pain, infertility, joblessness, depression, the list could go on. And when faced with such things, we can identify with the psalmist who says, I poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me down in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. What stunning imagery. Think about it. When you first get the news about grief or loss, don't you just feel impotent, powerless, unmotivated, like the living dead? And think of the image of water being poured out. There's nothing quite so helpless as water in a container. See, this water, I can do whatever I want with this water. And it's at my complete mercy. And I can just pour it out. And it can do nothing. It has no structure. Or someone who has their bones out of joint. Anyone had a dislocated joint? I was a uh, pretty, pretty studly wrestler my senior year. I was Puget Sound Wrestler of the Year. And I was at a, lake, a, a tournament of Lake Stevens. And I got in a bad position. And I had my shoulder separated. And all of a sudden, I went from pretty confident Chris to bird with a broken wing. And you just cannot move it. And so the image here of having all your bones out of joint, it's like water being poured out. It's like having no structure, no ability to, to respond to whatever news that you have, to the trial in your life. Being, having your strength dried up like a, like a potsherd. That's the Hebrew word for potsherd is literally baked clay. That's about as dry as it gets. Your strength dried up. Tongue sticking to the inside of your mouth. Kevin probably knows he just ran a marathon. But all of this would be horrible. But it's almost more horrible if you're a person of faith, in a way. You notice David's words? You lay me in the dust of death. You see, at least for an atheist, they can just say, stuff happens, you know the bumper sticker? Stuff happens. But for a person of God, like David, like us, who believe that God is in some way sovereign, it may not have caused all these circumstances, but at least allowed them to happen. And David writes, you lay me down in the dust of death. That's powerful. And yet, these words of faith, 
recognize that God is sovereign. In a way, it's the most stinging insult and ray of hope that we have. David continues, his enemies now seem human, though they're evil humans, and he describes the impotent feeling of having his hands pierced and wasting away so that his bones are exposed. Life is passing him by, and people are already writing him off. He's not dead yet, and they're already gambling for his stuff, gambling for his clothes, casting lots for his clothes. And you know, after verse 21, the psalmist shifts in a knee-jerk shift from distress to praise. And I just want to recognize out loud that if you're in a place of grief right now, this shift from grief to praise seems most rushed and artificial. And I just want to recognize that some of you might not be ready to take the turn. Some of you might be in that Psalm 88 state. The psalm that Kevin read is a lament psalm, but it doesn't have all the ingredients, does it? Psalm 88 starts with one sentence that's confidence in God. And the rest of it is dark, 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 dark. In, I think the last word is darkness. Darkness is my friend, I believe, is the idea. I think one of the, the things that the Lament Psalms show us is that God is okay with that. There is space, not only in your personal walk with God, but there is space. There has to be space, friends, in the church. We can't constantly just be pushing people to hurry along. We don't want people to despair, but we don't want to pretend like we can just get on when things aren't going well. You might be... Uh, knowing in your head that God is there, but not experiencing His comfort. You know it in your head, that's why you're here. But you're not hearing back, you're not ready to move on, that's okay. And there's space for grief. For those of you who are not ready to move on to praise yet, hear these next words, maybe as a beacon of hope. Because even after Psalm 88, there's Psalm 89 which comes back to a word of praise. So David, in this psalm, gained some divine perspective. Maybe he wrote this, this last part of the psalm after his trouble had passed, or maybe God gave him hope in the middle of his trouble. But whatever it was, David spends the rest of Psalm 22 praising God for his presence with the brokenhearted. And one line in particular really jumps out at me. Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Now these words jump out at me for two reasons. First of all, the psalmist had just been thinking of himself as a worm and not a man. A worm despised and maybe even he saw himself as completely unworthy for God to even approach. But here, he seems to see that no amount of suffering that he's, he's going through can make God reject him. God does not abhor, he does not hate your affliction or your suffering. In fact, he's near to the brokenhearted. The second reason that verse 24 stands out to me is because this line is supported strongly by Isaiah 53, particularly Isaiah 53.10. And this, of course, Isaiah 53 is a, a text about the suffering servant, Jesus the Christ. 
You see, we don't just have a God who says it's okay for us to grieve and have doubts. We have a God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. A God who suffered and died on the cross and that Jesus himself cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Jesus said that. The Father we pray to is the Father who grieved His only Son. The Jesus who suffered is the Jesus who suffers with us. He went to the cross for the joy set before Him on the other side. He endured, not because He always experienced the Father's deliverance, but because He had hope that the Father would do the best possible thing in the end. And He bids us to do the same. We're going to transition now um, to our prayers of healing. I'll ask Candace to come forward.